The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Megan Westgate. She is the founder and executive director of the Non-GMO Project, committed to building and preserving the non-GMO food supply. You may have seen their butterfly label, on packaged foods, assuring consumers that those foods are free from genetically modified ingredients. We'll dive into this label, why it's important, and what it means for public health and our environment. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much, Melinda. It's good to be here. Well, let's see, you started this in 2006, 2007. Is that right? That's right. And we talked within the first few years. Exactly. And now... If I'm correct, there are 40,000 plus non-GMO project verified products in the marketplace. There's actually more than 100,000 different SKUs out there with the butterfly on them. That's a tremendous growth. It is. And honestly, probably all those years ago when we first talked, I would have never imagined that it would have grown to this size. It's really incredible. And I'm so excited we're talking today because In spite of that, the GMO issue is more concerning than ever. There's just a lot of developments happening that make our work a lot more complicated than it was when we started. Well, top of list for me is the non-GMO project label. What does that tell consumers in the marketplace? So the non-GMO project is a nonprofit organization, and we maintain a third-party standard. So what that means is that we go through a public comment process. And then we work with external certifiers to review products to see if they meet our standard. And so that little label, when people see it, it means that it has been reviewed and it's been deemed compliant with our standard. And the core components of our standard are testing, traceability, and segregation. So we require ongoing testing of any high-risk GMO ingredients and they have to test below our action threshold of 0.9%. That's the same threshold that's used in the EU. But in the United States, until a couple years ago, there weren't any regulations about GMO labeling, and the ones that we have now are really insufficient. So this is the way for consumers in the United States to know that a product has been reviewed and meets the highest standards for GMO avoidance. And part of what our standard requires is ongoing testing. So it's not just occasionally we're going in and testing that product. Every single batch of ingredients that might be GMO, so for example, high-risk crops like corn, soy, canola, even if it's organic, we require it to be tested and to be below the action threshold. And then there is also an on-site inspection, and it's an annual review process. So Our technical administrators are looking through all the test results and the inspection results on an annual basis to make sure that everything is operating according to the standard. Third-party verification programs get really high marks from me because I think they become more trustworthy when there is a third-party review. 
Now, why did you become concerned originally about GMO food products? At the time that I got involved, the majority of our key commodity crops, corn, soy, canola, were the vast majority, like close to 90% or over 90% of all of those crops were GMO. And I was very concerned that we were going to lose the possibility of having non-GMO varieties of those crops if we didn't do something, because basically it was just all happening under the radar. There was no required labeling. And keep in mind, these are crops that have never had long-term human safety studies done. We don't know what the impacts are. So really, for me personally, from a values perspective, I had the privilege of growing up in rural Western Massachusetts, seeing a lot of my food grown. We grew a lot of food in the garden. And I've always had a sense of the connectedness of our human health and the health of the food that we eat and the land that it's grown in. And so it's really intuitive for me that it is a bad idea to manipulate nature and to treat it like a science experiment. And I felt like in the absence of knowing what the long-term consequences of GMOs are for our health and for our planet, that it was imperative that we at least preserve non-GMO options so that we have a choice later. So that's really what motivated me to get into this. And I am also really passionate about the power of individual choice and how that maps out in the collective also. So recognizing that a simple choice, like what we pull off the shelf in the grocery store, with those choices, we actually are co-creating our food system. Eaters have a tremendous amount of power to shape the food system. And that's the premise behind the Non-GMO project, which is the reason we now have that 100,000 verified products is because eaters have voted with their dollars and said, we want non-GMO choices. And I continue to be tremendously inspired by that power that we have to make a difference in creating our food supply. I agree. Well, I became concerned about GMO products when I learned that what a GMO corn or soy or canola product really means is that those crops had been engineered to withstand spraying of Roundup. Of course, now there are Roundup-resistant weeds. Now these seeds and these crops become resistant to dicamba and 2,4-D and an increasing number of herbicide sprays, which end up in our water and our air, as well as our food and in our gut. And we really haven't studied how these chemicals are impacting our microbiome. So there's so much connection, as you certainly understand, this whole interconnectedness of the web of life. And I don't think we stop to ask enough about unintended consequences. I agree. And it is important for people to understand. I mean, we'll get into today a little bit of how genetic engineering is being applied with some of the new techniques. But it's important to remember that the vast majority of GMOs are still, as you said, these herbicide tolerant crops that were created by agrochemical companies as a way to increase profits. They get more profits for their seeds because the seeds are patented and they are selling more chemicals because these seeds are designed to be grown and then sprayed with the chemicals that these companies sell. So it's very obvious what the motivation behind these is and yet somehow that goes unexamined by the government and that's why i think we really needed this people-led movement to resist that because there are a lot of people who are paying attention 
there is a lot of science to show how dangerous these chemicals are, but a lot of us don't even need that science. No, that's not something that I want getting sprayed near my kids. Food that's been sprayed by a chemical that's designed to kill life is not something I want to put in my baby's body. Like a lot of people just intuitively get it. And it's unfortunate that our government doesn't have stricter regulations to help protect people. Exactly. And of course, there is finally some labeling of genetically modified foods, but it doesn't nearly get to what we need. First of all, the term GMO is not on the label. The term that was selected by USDA is bioengineered or BE. And I don't think most consumers understand that bioengineered equals GMO. They absolutely do not. And that is exactly why those are the terms that were chosen, which is such an insult. But we submitted comments along with many other nonprofit organizations and provided research when this rule was under final development to show that this is not a term that shows up in anyone's Googling. It's not been used anywhere. It's an invented term. I mean, bioengineering has been used a bit in the medical space. That's more where the previous association is. And not only are those the terms that are allowed, but the Bioengineering Food Disclosure Act doesn't actually even require companies to use plain English terms at all. So companies can just put a QR code and leave it at that. And someone has to scan it and somehow intuit that it might have information related to GMOs. It's incredibly obfuscating from start to finish. And that's why in a large sense, that whole debacle really just confirmed the importance of the non-GMO project and the fact that we, unfortunately, in this country can't count on our government to provide us with clear, transparent information about GMOs. And that's why we have the butterfly. And then in your most recent press release, there was a statement that there is new federal policy that prioritizes biotech and food, with President Biden signing an executive order committing $2 billion to advance biotech in the U.S. food supply. In other words, our taxpayer money is going to be used to support private GMO companies. That just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't at all seem right. The National Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Initiative is, as you said, it's all about giving this $2 billion to private GMO companies. So it is a directive to expand the market for GMO products, to build more national infrastructure for biomanufacturing, and it also will involve streamlining regulations across all federal agencies. So it's really a concerning, but in a way not surprising continuation of the federal government's policies that are heavily influenced by the biotech lobby. We should talk a little bit about how genetic engineering is portrayed in the press. So I'm a dietitian. I go to dietetic conferences. There's a group, GMO Answers, that's actually part of big ag companies, they try to teach dietitians that we've been doing genetic engineering throughout the millennia and that this is just a little bit different. Why is that such a dangerous understanding of genetic engineering? Well, it's not only dangerous, it's just blatantly misleading and manipulative. There 
is a well-established international definition of biotechnology and genetic engineering. And it's upheld in CODEX and the Cartagena Protocol. It's the definition that we use in the non-GMO project standard. And the scientific definition that is upheld across the world is the key point of it is that it is in vitro nucleic acid techniques. In vitro literally means in glass. So it's in a laboratory, the DNA, the proteins, the nucleic acids are being manipulated. This is a very new, like last 30 to 40 years development. And it is completely different than what humans have been doing starting 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture, where traditional crop breeding humans out in the field have evolved our food. And that kind of natural cross-pollination and crossbreeding is still happening. And that's still how we can improve our food in a way that is safe and natural. So that tagline about we've been doing this forever, I mean, we still hear that too. We've heard it since the project started 16 years ago. It's absolutely misleading and untrue. Genetic engineering is not something that has been happening for hundreds of years at all. It happens in a lab and it's new and it's continuing to evolve rapidly. The way that in vitro nucleic acid techniques, the array of them is growing rapidly. And that's one of our biggest concerns. The majority of GMO crops are engineered for herbicide tolerance, but there's an absolute explosion right now of new techniques. And people maybe have heard about like in the alternative protein space. Um, and this is a space that will definitely benefit from this executive order. But that space already has $20 billion of private venture capital in it. So they really don't need our taxpayer dollars to help develop that. But there's a lot that falls under the umbrella of in vitro nucleic acid techniques, but all of it is happening in a lab and all of it is relatively new. And it's based on a really false paradigm, which is the idea that human beings are separate from nature and that it is safe and appropriate to extract pieces of nature in a laboratory to reduce it into small parts and to put it back out in nature and in life and think that we understand the consequences. We absolutely are really far from having the scientific ability to map all of the unintended consequences that happen within the DNA of a plant that has been manipulated through genetic engineering. And then what happens not only in that plant, but to the environment it's grown in and to the humans who eat it and the animals who eat it. I remember interviewing Don Huber many years ago, plant pathologist who had yeah. been with Purdue for years. And he said, you know, when you change one thing, you change everything else. So to your point of unintended consequences, I think that that absolutely is supportive. Megan, let me take one break because we're halfway through and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Megan Westgate. She is the executive director of the Non-GMO Project. And we are talking about what that label means to consumers in the marketplace. Okay, Megan, let's go to the grocery store together. I'm down the cracker aisle. I see boxes of crackers. One says USDA certified organic. One says non-GMO project verified. And another has both organic and non-GMO project verified on it. Can you help me navigate those three labels? How do I know which one to buy? That's a great question. So USDA organic has a wider scope of what's in certification and there's restrictions against 
herbicides, insecticides, what kinds of seeds get used. And the non-GMO label is specifically about GMOs. As I said, what we do is we require ongoing testing for ingredients that are at risk for being GMO. It is not within the scope of our standard to look at whether or not herbicides were used. Although, as we discussed, there is a close correlation between a lot of where the herbicides are sprayed the most and GMOs. But the reason that a lot of people choose that third option, which is the one that has the USD organic label and the butterfly, is because they want both the rigor of the USD organic certification that looks at the whole scope of how it was grown. And then they also want to know that the risk ingredients have been tested, which the USD organic label does not require GMO testing. Um, and it also doesn't have updated regulations related to all of the new GMOs entering the marketplace, which is an increasing area of focus for us, which I'd love to talk more about. But it's basically that combination of if you're concerned about GMOs and also herbicides and other pesticides, you should look for both labels. I see. Well, I do know that farmers have had their grain rejected when they go to sell it, if during that point of sale, they find a certain level of GMO contamination. So there is that protection. But I think it's important for people to understand what exactly the non-GMO project verification gives the consumer in addition to that certified organic label. Yeah, so absolutely that happens when a load gets rejected because someone is testing and it's over a threshold. That's not because the organic rules require that. It's just important to understand that a lot of folks have things in their supply chain, and especially since the creation of the non-GMO project, that's more common. But also the EU has had restrictions against GMOs for a lot of people have built-in testing, but ongoing testing is not part of the organic reg. Okay. Do you want to talk about some of the new products that are in development? I would love to talk about that because this is a development that I, quite frankly, never anticipated when the project started. And when we started, there were a handful of commodity crops that were being genetically engineered. And again, that still is the majority of GMOs that are in commercial production are those commodity crops that are being grown out in the field and sprayed with herbicides. But there are developments in how genetic engineering is being used with techniques like synthetic biology and gene editing. People may have heard of terms like CRISPR and Talon. These are all a new wave of genetic engineering. Same in vitro nucleic acid techniques, so manipulation that's happening in a laboratory, but it's leading to the development of things like animal-free dairy whey, synthetic eggs, bioengineered honey, quote-unquote beanless coffee, artificial collagen, heme, which is a blood-like substance that makes your burger look like it's bleeding. It's being used in all kinds of ways. And just to highlight the explosion that's happening in this space, we now have a research team comprised of three full-time researchers. Their job is just tracking what's happening in the space. That was not something that we needed within our structure when the project started because it was like six crops that we were watching and it was about creating these standards and the ongoing testing. But our team is currently tracking more than 500 different companies. So that's another big change is when GMOs started, it was just a handful of agrochemical companies, Monsanto obviously being the most famous and most hated of them. 
But now it's Silicon Valley venture capital money going into this. And again, more than 500 companies in this space, which since we started tracking in 2016 is 250% growth. It just continues month after month, year after year, more and more companies getting into the space and figuring out how to do really weird stuff to our food and ingredients that can sneak into products in all kinds of ways. And so this is another place in addition to the ongoing testing that we require. Many of these new products actually can't be tested. So you have to know where they might be showing up and what questions to ask about them. And the non-GMO project certification is the only certification that does this. Again, it requires three full-time researchers just to be keeping track of it. What questions do you think we should be asking? Well, we have a whole affidavit that companies have to sign if their ingredients are at risk for being associated with these new genetic engineering techniques and are on the risk list in our standard. So it's really about asking how it was made and there's specific technical terms that have to be used and asked. And then you need someone with enough knowledge about where the ingredient came from to be able to make the attestation that it wasn't produced in these ways. But I think what's really one of honestly the most problematic things besides just the rapid proliferation of all of these new ingredients and companies is that a lot of this is being sold into the market as non-GMO. So it's kind of the new version of what you're saying about people who say like, oh, we've been genetic engineering forever and our don't look behind the curtain move there. There's the same kind of thing happening now where because these are not commodity crops that are getting sprayed, companies who produce them are saying that they're not genetic engineering, but that claim is completely unscientific and inconsistent with international definitions of genetic engineering. They're just manipulating a layperson's understanding. So even at a brand level, we find a lot of times brands don't know what questions to ask. So if a consumer asks one of their favorite brands, are there any GMO ingredients? Or do you have ingredients that are made from any of these new biotechnology techniques? The brand won't necessarily know if they don't have certifications through the non-GMO project and the support of our technical team to do the review of their ingredients. They won't necessarily know how to answer those questions. It can be very difficult to get this information. It absolutely can. I know I had called infant formula companies inquiring about whether or not some of their soy had been genetically modified because parents would want to know that. And the answer was clearly read by the consumer representative from a sheet saying that these products are perfectly safe. So it's very difficult to pull back that curtain. I have questions that I think consumers should be asking, like what was the genetic engineering exactly? You know, was it herbicide resistance or was it some other form of technology that say made an apple not brown when it was cut? Those are two different applications. Another is what are the alternatives to genetic engineering? As we spoke about earlier, what are the traditional plant breeding techniques that might be an alternative? Who profits from the technology? Are consumers at the end of the day benefiting from the technology? And then that really difficult question, which is what are the unintended consequences, which we may not know for another several decades? Yeah, those are all great questions. And I think in terms of looking at the alternatives, we are at a moment as human beings on planet Earth, where we cannot afford to continue this paradigm that's based on the 
absolutely false illusion that we are separate from nature. The whole paradigm of genetic engineering is like, we can extract and separate nature and deal with it over here in a lab and bend it to our will. And that's going to have a good outcome. We need to start really living and working and creating with respect for the fact that we are part of nature. We are part of life on earth. Everything is interconnected. Everything has a consequence, good or bad, and impact somehow down the line. And we need to start co-creating our reality from that understanding that this is our home, unless maybe you want to leave and go to Mars. This is all we've got, and we need to be in right relationship. And I think I feel inspired by what I see as an uprising in the collective of a growing awareness and more truth being spoken about this fact that this is just a false paradigm. And it's obvious to anyone who really looks because we're all part of nature, we all have the intuitive capacity to understand what right relationship feels like and looks like. And I think over the years, we've seen non-GMO supporters being criticized for being anti-science. And I would say that it's just about the most anti-science thing I can imagine the premise that the biotech industry is based on, which is a total lack of curiosity and ongoing inquiry. What does this do? What is going to happen later? The whole industry, which calls itself scientific, is based on upholding the narrative that supports continued profits. It is not scientific. It is not curious. And it is not going to serve us in the very critical moment we find ourselves in. I'm so glad you brought that up about science and questioning, because what I hear from the promoters of GMO crops, and I'm lumping them all together here, but the response is always from industry, we've got the answers, these products are safe, and further questioning is really discouraged. And I think anytime we come up in a situation where our questions are discouraged, a little red flag should pop up and say, this is anti-science when we're not encouraged to question and continue to question. So thank you for that. Yeah, I think everyone can see that there's a lot about how humans are living that is not working. And so curiosity is absolutely one of our most important tools. We need to find different paradigms and different ways. And in a lot of cases, it's just honoring indigenous wisdom and knowledge and ways of how to be in right relationship and From my perspective, a lot of the kind of perfectionistic, controlling, not curious ways are really consistent with colonialism and white supremacy and patriarchy. And, you know, it's all embedded in these systems of thought that we have to recognize, you know, there are alternatives and there are human beings, indigenous, black people of color, traditional ways that really point the way to a different way of thinking about our relationship with each other and with life. Well, Megan, I want to direct people to the Non-GMO Project to learn just how rigorous this label really is, and that's www.nongmoproject.org. What would you like to close with? I would love to remind everyone that we are co-creating our world with every choice we make, and specifically that we are co-creating our food system with every choice that we make in the grocery store every time we buy food or we choose and are able to grow food. Just remembering that even if it feels like you're just one person and you don't have much impact, this non-GMO movement and the fact that we have non-GMO choices today available to us is because of 
the collective impact of every single one of those individual choices, every single time someone chooses a non-GMO product, that is helping to fortify and build our non-GMO food supply. And in that same way, we have more power than we remember. So that's what I want to leave people with is the power that we have to co-create our world and let's make it more beautiful every day. Thank you, Megan. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Megan Westgate, founder and executive director of the Non-GMO Project. Thank you so much for your time today, Megan. Thank you, Melinda. It was great to be with you.